breaking news, debates, and hot takes. Our sportscasters cover it all on WSOU's number one sports talk podcast. This is X's and Opinions. Hello and welcome to another episode of X's and Opinions. Today we will be discussing week two of NFL play, the upcoming MLB playoffs, and some recent news coming out about the NBA season. I'm your host, Haley Zemek, and today I'm joined by a panel of analysts with Michael Daly and Ryan Henry. Guys, how are you doing today before we start? I'm doing very I'm doing. well. Good, good to be with you guys, Ryan and Haley. I'm doing great as well. Can't get, can't get, I can't wait to get into some action. A lot of NFL games coming up in the MLB playoff races coming down to the wire. Good to hear. Glad you guys could be here with me. So let's get right into it. So week two, Thursday night football, the New York Giants, they traveled to the FedEx field. They took on the Washington football team after a tough week one loss to the Denver Broncos. The Giants were ready to redeem themselves and take home a win. But as always, they disappoint the New York fans week after week, and they lost to the Washington football team 29-30 to after Washington had a last-second 43-yard field goal attempt. So for this game, guys, uh, who are the major players that stood out? What were some of the key takeaways that you saw? Uh Excuse me. There's a couple of players who stood out for me. I'll start with the Washington side. Terry McLaurin, wide receiver, had an amazing bounce back game from his week one performance. Led the team with receptions at 11. Had a nice couple of catches. Fished with over 100 yards and a touchdown. And I'll talk about another player who, you know, is part of a position group that really doesn't get talked about, and that's defensive line. Jonathan Allen, their defensive tackle for Washington, was just pressuring Daniel Jones the entire game. Fished with two sacks three QB hits. He was beating the Giants offensive line basically all the time and really helped that vaunted defense hold the Giants offense to what they did. And then on the Giants side of the ball, I was actually impressed with Daniel Jones's performance. You know, I'm not the biggest Daniel Jones guy, but he did his job, finished with a solid completion percentage, threw for 250 yards, which could have been 300 if uh, Darius Slayton didn't drop a pass in the th- in the second half, which a long touchdown pass. But He overall had a solid performance, zero turnovers. He also had almost 100 yards on the ground. So I was impressed by his performance when usually I feel he he posts lackluster performance in big games. You have to be impressed by Daniel Jones' performance because you go from his week one performance, which was not great. Many people feel like Daniel Jones held the Giants offense back in week one. There were some other contributing factors to their week one loss, but – his performance was a big part of that. And then week two, he really stepped his game up. Although he only threw for a touchdown, it was how he was able to drive the ball down the field, whether it was throwing or his 95 yards on the ground. That's something that's not talked about enough. When someone like Saquon Barkley's not having a great game, you need the offense to be opened up. And his athleticism, his ability to run and make plays that may not seem like they're available, but they are available. Daniel Jones did his job. I I thought he played a terrific game. It's not the greatest statistical performance in the world, but it was a very, very serviceable game. It's what you want to see from him. Uh, If you're looking at the other side for the Washington football team, I think it's safe to say that they got away with one. 
but they did have some pretty solid performances as well. Taylor Heineke in relief for Ryan Fitzpatrick, if you want to say that, although it's not really relief. It was more so he was the next man up. Two touchdowns, an interception, 338 passing yards through the air. Again, he's not a world beater, but he's a quality quarterback for what the Washington football team needs. He's not their starter, but they need someone to be a stopgap. And he was that guy. And I think he relied on Antonio Gibson, who had 69 yards on the ground. It, it was a typical NFC East matchup, to put it kindly. That, that's what it is. It was a game that was pretty close. Two teams that may not be at the top of the NFC, but are contending for an NFC East spot. No, absolutely. I love the way that you put it, that it was just a perfect N- NFC matchup, because it really was. It's fun to watch teams when they're when it's down to the last seconds, it's a nail biting game. Who knows who's going to win. And something that you said, Ryan, uh, highlighting Terry McLaurin, I just have to laugh because you and I are against each other in fantasy this week and you have him on your team. So I was following, uh, the spreadsheets for that, but no, just overall a great game. So now let's talk about what each team needs to improve upon for, week three and the opponents that they'll have. So the Giants for next week are taking on the Atlanta Falcons. What do you guys think that this team needs to do to improve for next week? Next week, I I would say this team has to figure out their play calling when it comes to offense. And everyone right away wants to jump on Jason Garrett, which I get it. He is the offensive coordinator, but the buck stops with the head coach. And that head coach is Joe Judge. There were several plays down the stretch that I just don't think, whether it was Jason Garrett or it was Joe Judge, that I think were were handled well. Also, it seems like this team is starting to unravel, and that's never a good thing in week two. Look at Kenny Galladay screaming on the sideline. At first, it was reported that he was screaming or assumed that he was screaming at Daniel Jones, but then other people who were close to the situation said, no, he was actually screaming at Jason Garrett. That's not a good thing when you're big money, free agent wide receiver in week two, not like week 14 or week 16, week two, the second week of the season is already getting upset. So they, they have to find a way to get a win against an Atlanta Falcons team who did not look all that good in week one against the Philadelphia Eagles. That's the perfect game to turn things around because you're 0-2. If you go 0-3, even in the NFC East, it's it's a slippery, slippery slope, Brian. Yeah, I would agree. But to bring up the point you mentioned about Kenny Galladay, it seems like this experiment's already backfiring them, and we're not even a quarter into the first year of his contract. He's gotten out-targeted by Darius Slayton. He was supposed to come in as this big game receiver, this jump ball guy, you know, someone Daniel Jones can rely upon. He was great in Detroit with Matthew Stafford, but now – he really hasn't been doing a whole lot much. Their first-round pick, Kadarius Tony, isn't really doing much either. And also, they also have to limit their mistakes. I know the last play uh, of the game, you could have argued it wasn't a jump snap. Dexter Lawrence kind of jumped, but he didn't move in front of the line of scrimmage. But still, that's a play you simply can't make, even if it was on Dexter Lawrence's side. And they gave Washington another opportunity to kick the field goal. And I think another key thing the uh, Giants have to do is just attack this Atlanta defense. This is not a good defense. Mike, Michael, you said it. They weren't that great against Philadelphia. And so if you get similar production in the air in the air from Daniel Jones and maybe you get a better performance on the ground from Saquon, I think the Giants should be able to bounce back against 
are inarguably one of the five worst teams in the NFL. Now, obviously our focus is the New York Giants being where we are, but what do you think the Washington football team needs to improve upon when they travel to Buffalo and they take on the Bills next week for week three? I, I would say that they, they have to find what is their future at quarterback. Right now it seems like Ryan Fitzpatrick is going to be out for quite some time. And I think at that moment in time, it comes down to Ron Rivera figuring out what's best for his team. Right now, I think it's Taylor Heineke. I, I think he's the guy you have to go with because he even showed last year being thrown into the fire in the playoffs. Arguably, the Washington football team were the hardest opponent for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who ended up becoming the Super Bowl champion. So clearly, Taylor Heineke has shown that he, he knows how to handle himself, whether it's a close game or just getting a victory in general. I, I think they just have to shore it up when it comes to that and having a connection between Taylor Heineke and Jonathan McKissick. Also, that defense. That defense might be the most overrated defense I've seen in a very, very long time. And, and it's kind of unfortunate because last year that defense was great, especially the front seven or, or the front four rather. But I think because of their success last year, everyone just thought, okay, it's the same front four pretty much. They're going to be just as good. But I think one thing they're running into is that the NFC East is much better, and they saw that with the Giants. So they have to figure out that defense as well. Yeah, I like your point about the defense. They really need to kind of keep up their intensity on the defensive end because you're playing the Bills team, even though they lost week one the Steelers, this was a team that made it to the AFC Championship game. They had Josh Allen, who was second MVP, and they have a stud receiver in Stephon Diggs. And, you know, to your point about the quarterback, I think long, even when Fitz comes back, it's eight weeks. I think unless Taylor Heineke is, like, really horrible, I think Ron Rivera might just stick to him because I think he's proven himself his last few games that he is a reliable starter going forward. And if he can establish that uh, connection with Terry McLaurin or J.D. McKissick, I think that'll be huge in the long run. And especially you can use a bit more of his mobility in the running game, but they just have to keep up their intensity. They can't just rely on playing Daniel Jones and a horrible Giants offensive line. They're playing a stud Bills team that has true Super Bowl ambitions this season. Now, as we're taping right now, it is only Sunday morning, so we have yet to see any other week two game. One o'clock, it starts the endless day of NFL football, which I know I look forward to each and every week, as I'm sure you guys do too. So the first game I want to discuss is our other New York team, the New York Jets. They're taking on the New England Patriots. Now, the Jets, they do have a rookie quarterback in Zach Wilson. So it's hard to predict how this team is going to manage uh, during this week too, now having a week one loss as well. So for this game, who are some major players that we should look at for both the Jets and the Patriots? And are there any takeaways for what this game will be? I think you, I think Ryan, you have to look at Zach Wilson and how is he going to be able to work against that Patriots defense that they smell blood in the water. Bill Belichick loves going up against rookie quarterbacks because he loves pushing the issue forcing any unforced errors, and that, that's exactly what's going to happen. I think he's going to bring the pressure on a rookie quarterback in Zach Wilson, and how will Zach Wilson be able to fare? 
How will Zach Wilson be able to work with Corey Davis? How will he be able to work with the running game? Whether it's him running himself or just the play calling, Michael LaFleur being able to open up that offense, being able to run the ball when it's right, and just being able to score. Because just going off of last week, their biggest issue was being able to score in the first half. They were not able to do that whatsoever. But the second half, they were able to turn it on. And I think you have to go to your key contributors. Corey Davis is somebody that is an outstanding wide receiver. I don't think he's given nearly enough credit. And if he's able to have a standout performance this afternoon against the New England Patriots, the the Jets may not find themselves as far behind as they did against the Panthers in week one. Yeah, Zach Wilson's ability to be under pressure and thrive under pressure is going to be huge. I mean, last week he was constantly under pressure by a Panthers defense, which quite frankly, isn't that amazing? You're going up against a Patriots defense. Like, like you said, Michael, they smell fresh blood. They are going to attack. They're going to go at the point of attack and they are just going to do whatever they can to pressure Zach Wilson, force him to make careless mistakes. And I think also you have to look at the Jets offensive line and how they're going to fare against, you know, the Patriots front four because Makai Becton's already out and they don't really have that great of an offensive line to begin with. And it's really going to be the battle of the rookie QBs, which one can thrive under pressure, which one will, will commit less mistakes. We know Mac Jones had a historic rookie historic performance last week in their loss against the Dolphins. So it's just going to be a matter of Zach Wilson being able to be under pressure and make the correct plays and not turn over the ball. Now going from week one to week two, what do you think the jets need to improve upon since they played the Carolina Panthers who only beat them by five. What do you think they need to do for these uh, Patriots? Haley, there's one thing that the the Jets really struggled with in their week one match was the run game. I mean, I don't know if it was Michael LaFleur, the offensive line just not blocking well or their lack of talent at the position, but they really couldn't establish the run game. You know, they would be first and 10. They'd call run play. They'd maybe get a yard or two. Now you're looking at second and nine and, it's a very predictable pass play. So just getting the run game established more, maybe get Zach Wilson involved in some zone reads to kind of open up the defense a bit more, maybe get some play action. If you can allow the threat of a passing, uh, a pass play, but they need to be a little bit less predictable running the ball and they need to just get the ball going a bit more because, you know, if you're only getting one or two yards of carry on first down, you're getting put in a bad position to start off that uh, set of downs. I would also say that they need to take advantage of the home crowd and the energy that comes along with playing at MetLife Stadium because you're not in Carolina anymore. You're not going up against a a fan base that obviously does not want you to succeed. You're going up against your own crowd or or with your own crowd, I should say. So they need to take advantage of that. I, I think they came out of the gates very slow week one, and that can't happen against the New England Patriots because Just looking at the way the Patriots played week one, it was a very tight game for most of the game against the Dolphins. And the Patriots, and at least the Patriots and the Dolphins, I think they are two better teams than the Jets. So you might as well consider the fact that the Patriots are trying to get out to a hot start. Mac Jones looked pretty solid last week. They're trying to take advantage right away. So using that home crowd energy, you know MetLife Stadium will be rocking with all of the anticipation, they need to take advantage of it. Now, you already mentioned a little bit, Michael, about the Patriots and their 
game last week against the Miami Dolphins. What do you think they need to improve upon? Because they did only beat the Dolphins by one point. I think they have to find a way, again, to not start off slow. Because Mac Jones, I think it took him a little bit of time to get adjusted to that offense. Granted, the Miami Dolphins and Brian Flores and their defensive schemes, I thought they did a nice job of disguising and confusing Mac Jones. That was something that worked out well. But the the Patriots, it took them until the second half to really get comfortable. And that's a problem at home. That's not really something in the early stages of the regular season that the Patriots are are used to seeing. The Patriots usually come out swinging right away like they did last year in week one against the Dolphins and in either week two or three against the Raiders last year. They were in the driver's seat against the Dolphins. That wasn't the case. But you know what, though? Last year, the Dolphins were a borderline playoff team. They almost made the playoffs. So they're still a good team this year. I understand that. This week against the Jets, though, there's really no excuse if they lose this game. This is a game that if you were competing against the Buffalo Bills, This year, even the Miami Dolphins who beat you, you have to find a way to win the games you should win. And this is a game they should win. So I think defensively they have to pressure Zach Wilson. I don't think they did enough of that against Tua Tagovailoa. And if they're able to do that, Bill Belichick should be one-on-one on the season. Yeah, I mean, getting out to a quicker start is huge for this Patriots team. And going to your point about trying to compete with the Bills and Dolphins this season, could you say that, I know it's only week two, but this maybe could be a, this is a critical game. I wouldn't say make or break because it is only week two, but you already lost to the Dolphins, which is a divisional opponent. And if you lose to the Jets, you're already starting 0-2 in division play. You're 0-2 in the standings. And the the data based on 0-2 teams making the playoffs is not that great. I want to say it's somewhere around 10 to 15%, but I don't know exactly. So you got to get going on offense. Like you said, this is a game they absolutely must win because they are better, more experienced than the New York Jets also they committed three fumbles again that game against the Dolphins. I would say that was one of the that was probably one of the main reasons why they lost their game because if you look, they frustrate to a tug, tug of Viola on the defensive end. They ran the ball well. I think they had over 100 yards rushing. Mac Jones, despite a slow start, still finished with the highest completion percentage out of any first game starter in NFL history. So limit the mistakes, get off to a hot start because this is critical if the Patriots have any hope for a playoff berth. Now, real quick, before we move on to the next game that we're going to talk about, what are your guys' predictions for this game? Who's going to win? What's going to be the score? I think the Patriots are going to win, but it's it's going to be a close game. I'm going to say by one score, I'll say seven points. You know, even though I think the Patriots are a better team on paper, I think the Jets are, the Jets are really going to feed into this crowd. It's their home opener. First time with fans back in like two years, Zach Wilson, the new era, it's going to be his first game. I think they're really going to feed into that crowd, play up to expectations. and But I think the Patriots will, in the end, pull it off. The, you know, Mac Jones will do what he needs to do on the offensive end, and I think the Patriots defense will do just enough to prevent Zach Wilson from winning his first career game. My take is a little bit different. I, I think it's going to be still in favor of the Patriots, but I think it's going to be a two-score game. I'm going to go with 27-17. Patriots get it done on the road against the Jets. Good to hear. So now the next game that we are going to talk about, which I'm very excited about because it is my team. We're going to be talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers taking on the Las Vegas Raiders. 
Now the Steelers, they were predicted to lose their week one game against the Buffalo Bills, but as they sometimes do, they prevailed. They won 23-16. So again, what are some of the major players that you guys uh, see coming out of this game and what are some of the key takeaways? You have to look at that defense. Blitzburg, as it's called. They didn't really blitz Josh Allen last week, and I think that worked to their benefit. The way Melvin Ingram was able to impact that game last week, the way T.J. Watt was able to perform at such a high level despite not participating in training camp until the very end, I I think the Steelers are they, – they have something going there, and it shocked a lot of people. It really did that they were able to beat the Buffalo Bills, but – the Steelers are still a very, very quality team. You cannot overlook the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think that defense is going to carry them against an Oakland Raiders team who you guys can disagree with me if you want, but I buy stock in the West Coast to East Coast travel. I think there's an effect in that, especially on a short week. On a short week where you played a night game and the game ended almost Tuesday East Coast time. It actually might have ended Tuesday East Tuesday East Coast time in Las Vegas. That's a big difference going from Bay going from Las Vegas to Pittsburgh and you have to go up against a rowdy Heinz Field home crowd. I I think the Steelers have everything especially on the defensive side to take advantage of some lapses in throwing that Derek Carr showed. Derek Carr had about 6 passes in the fourth quarter and even in overtime where they were just incompletions. And he looked like he was starting to spiral. Against the Ravens defense, you can get away with that. Because the, the Ravens, they're a good team, but I think they like to self-destruct a little bit too much. Based on the way the Steelers played week one, I don't think the Steelers are going to self-destruct. They're going to be there from the start of the game to the end of the fourth quarter and beyond if it goes that far. The, the Steelers, I, I don't think, will give Derek Carr any room for error. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because I think the Steelers are really taking on this underdog mentality, which is kind of weird because they did win the AFC North last season and they did start off the season so hot, but I think it was due to that cold stretch to end the season and then them losing to the Browns in the fashion they did. I feel like a lot of people, and I'll say myself included, lost faith in this team. You know, we thought that there was going to be a Ben Roethlisberger regression, you know, the defense was going to be great, but, you know, it's going to be hampered by a very limited offense. But they really came out, went into Buffalo against a great Bills team and just beat them up. Their defense was a huge part of it. Like you said, T.J. Watt finished with two sacks. Cam Hayward on the defensive line also finished with a sack. And so Vegas is going to have a tough challenge against them. They did pull off, I would say, a very lucky win against Baltimore. But the Steelers in Hinesfield is going to be a different aspect the travel might be a concern because now they'll be without Josh Jacobs. So they're going to have to rely on Kenyon Drake in the running game. But I, I think the Steelers are looking nice going in for going into week two. Now, both of you already mentioned a few things regarding week one for both teams, whether it was the Steelers playing the Buffalo Bills or the Raiders playing the Baltimore Ravens. Is there anything else you guys wanted to add that these teams need to improve upon as they take each other on today for week two? I would say the Raiders have to find a way to make Darren Waller their key piece. He had over 100 yards receiving against the Ravens. If he's able to have a great game where he has a touchdown or two, 
the Raiders could be in contention to hang in there for most of the game, but they have to find a way to make Darren Waller their key piece. How will Brian Edwards be able to respond as well? Had a pretty solid game, mostly late down the stretch against the Ravens on Monday night, but nonetheless, it was still a great game. Can he duplicate that? Can he replicate that performance? If he can, this could be a close game. It, it all depends on how the Raiders are going to respond offensively. Yeah, on the defensive end, the Steelers are going to treat Darren Waller like he's the number one receiver because in actuality, he really is, even though he's listed as a tight end because he finished the game with almost 20 targets, which is just ridiculous volume, especially for the tight end position. So you have to allow these other guys like Brian Edwards, Henry Ruggs to maybe open up the offense a bit more. But shifting to Pittsburgh, I feel like they have to get their rushing attack going a bit more. I know their offensive line isn't the greatest unit, but Najee Harris, he came in, he was supposed to be the stud first round running back finished with under three yards of carry, which really isn't acceptable. And in total, if you exclude the chase Claypool run, they only ran for 50 yards between Najee and big Ben. I think had a couple of scrambles, but you got to get the run game established a bit more because you know, their Ben Roethlisberger isn't the quarterback he used to be. So if you can keep the ball on your side, of the end, get your defense, well, rest up work to the Vegas defense. I think that'll be a good formula to win this today's matchup. Now, to end off this game, what are your predictions? Who's going to win? What's the score? I'm going to go the Pittsburgh Steelers by two scores. I think, you know, the travel from Vegas to Pittsburgh is going to really going to affect them. I think this, the Steelers are really riding on a high. You know, they just went to Buffalo, beat a Bills team that has really, like, one of the best teams in the NFL. I think their defense is going to be locked in. They're going to feed into – the Pittsburgh crowd and, you know, Vegas, while I think they're very slept on by some people, I don't think they're really expecting the Steelers defense is an upgrade from that Baltimore Ravens defense, which is really hampered by injury right now. So I would say Steelers by, I think, I think 13 points they'll win by. 34, 16 Steelers. That that's my prediction. The reason why I'm going to go with such a wide margin between the two scores is because I think between Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool, Juju Smith-Schuster, that trio, I think they're going to have a big, big day with that Raiders secondary. The, the Raiders defensive line, they pressured Lamar Jackson, but Big Ben, if he's able to get the ball out quickly, I think he'll be able to pick apart that secondary. So I'm going to go with 34-16 Steelers. I always like to hear Steelers winning. So, all right, the last game that we're going to talk about is – we talked about the two New York teams. Now we're going to talk about the two PA teams, and that is the Philadelphia Eagles. They're going to be taking on the San Francisco 49ers. Now in week one, the Eagles dominated. I mean, dominated the Atlanta Falcons 32-6, which it may have been good luck. Who knows? The Falcons aren't really that great, but it was only week one, too early in the season to tell. Now for today's game, who are some of the major players you guys want to see? What are some of the key takeaways that uh, are going to happen? So being the Eagles fan I am, I was obviously very impressed with their performance. Nick Sirianni made his coaching debut. Jalen Hurts uh, started for the start for the Eagles. This was his fifth game as a starter. And I think the major takeaway, if you look at the game from last week, was that they really kept the offense simple for Hurts and company. You know, they ran a lot of quick plat quick passes, bubble screens, drags, slants, RPOs. They ran the ball well. 
Devontae Smith and Jalen Hurts are already really establishing a good connection. Devontae Smith finished with uh, almost uh, finished with 70 receiving yards, touchdown. I was really impressed with Sanders on the ground. I think he had a nice bounce back game. And Jalen Rager, who was last year's pick, that people were saying Justin Jefferson should have went over him. And while I can agree to that point, I'm glad he started to build up some confidence and he had he had himself a very nice game as well. The one key player on the Eagles that I'm going to go with is Dallas Goddard. In week one, four receptions for 42 yards. He had a touchdown as well. If he's able to have a big day, I think there's a chance that the Jalen Hurts hype will be able to stay alive. Jalen Hurts, his jersey sales skyrocketed 500%. So clearly a lot of people are liking Jalen Hurts. Dallas Goddard, it never hurts having a reliable and trustworthy tight end. If he's able to have a big day against that 49ers defense, who the difference between this game and the Las Vegas Raiders game is that you would think the San Francisco 49ers would be traveling from Santa Clara to Philadelphia, but that wasn't the case. They played in Detroit. And then they actually stayed in a resort in West Virginia, which isn't that far from Philadelphia. So they've had time to, to adjust to the East Coast and the time zone. So I believe that defense will be well-rested, well-prepared to go up against Dallas Goddard, Devontae Smith. But like I said, I, I think Dallas Goddard is going to have a big day. I think he's going to do better. I, he may only have a touchdown like he did, but I think in terms of the receiving yards and the amount of times that the ball is intended for him, I think that's going to go up as well. Now, the Eagles did play a pretty amazing game against the Atlanta Falcons, but like I said, who knows if it was just luck or if the Falcons are really that terrible. But what do you think the Eagles need to improve upon from week one to now take on the 49ers today? I think if they can replicate what they did against Atlanta, I think they'll be in pretty good position. I think it's a combination of, you know, the Eagles maybe being – a little bit slept on. And also I think the Atlanta Falcons are just a very bad team, but you know, they did well in the air on the ground. They suffocated at the line scrimmage, both offensively and defensively. You know, they really made it a tough time for Matt Ryan and company. Maybe the only thing I can say they can improve on is their rush defense. They did allow a lot of yards to Mike Davis, Cordell Patterson and San Fran. We know they, they like to establish the run with Elijah Mitchell. Trey Sermon's now going to be active. Michael Hasey's on that roster. So, but overall, if they could replicate what they did against Atlanta, I think they have a great shot of beating San Fran this week. I don't necessarily know if there's anything they have to improve on, but I think there are things that they have to take into account. They have to take into account the fact that San Francisco is a much better team than Atlanta is. I know, Ryan, you alluded to that. This is going to be a very, very difficult game for them to win. If I am that defense, what I need to take advantage of is the uncertain state of San San Francisco's quarterback situation, because Jimmy Garoppolo could be looking at his last start as a San Francisco 49er. If he goes out there in Philadelphia this afternoon and just puts out a clunker, there's a very good chance that come week three, Trey Lance is the starting quarterback. If I'm Philadelphia and I know that, I am pressuring Jeremy Garoppolo. I am making it hard for him to hand the ball off to Elijah Mitchell. I'm trying to force him to throw the ball down the field to a struggling Brandon Ayuk 
or to some other players that are out there in the receiving core. I'm making him do what he may not like to do if I am the Eagles either secondary or I'm that front defensive unit. I'm trying to pressure him and make Kyle Shanahan think twice about Jimmy Garoppolo being the starting quarterback. Now for the 49ers, it wasn't as easy as the Eagles win. They did win, but it was a very hard fought contest against the Detroit Lions. What do you think the 49ers need to improve upon for today's game against the Eagles? I would say they can't let up. They were off to a very big lead and that lead shrunk. That's why they only won the game by eight points. With Jalen Hurt, his ability, Jalen Hurts, his ability to make plays, whether it's with scrambling or he's a pretty solid passer as well. There's always the threat that in the second half, the Eagles can come back. You cannot allow your defense to shrivel up the way they did. I, I think part of it was that the 49ers got a little bit complacent because they were out to such a big lead and Jared Goff wasn't having a very good game. He didn't play poorly, but the, the, the Lions did not have a great game. And I think they, they took their foot off the gas. Could it be also that Robert Sala is not there anymore? He's not their defensive coordinator. Robert Sala, arguably, when he was the D.C. there, was arguably the best defensive coordinator in the league. He's no longer there, so the players might be adjusting to a new defensive scheme. That could be a reason why they got complacent. I don't know, but I think today, though, if you come out to a big lead against the Eagles, you have to hold on to it. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, they were up by 20-plus points for a majority of that fourth quarter, and Jared Goff was pretty close to leading an improbable comeback. I think he got stopped at the Niners' 40-yard line fourth down, and fortunately, the Niners were able to pull, get off with barely get by with a win, but yeah, Michael, I understand. agree. They have to keep their foot on the gas pedal. They can't be complacent in the fourth quarter when they think they have a comfortable lead because if Jared Goff can almost lead a 20-point comeback, who's to say Jalen Hurts can't do the same thing? Or even if they play someone in the NFC West like Stafford, Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, they won't be able to do the same thing. Now for our last prediction of the day, who do you guys have winning and what is going to be the score? I'm going to say it's going to be the 49ers by three points. I think, you know, the Niners are are a better team than the Eagles, but I think that Jalen Hurts and this offense will be able to keep them in the game. But I just think that this team is very talented. I picked them to finish ahead of the Seattle Seahawks, and I think they're very could easily finish in first place as well in this great NFC West division. I think this is a very talented team from top to bottom. You know, they've been they've, – this core has been together for a few years now. Jalen Hurts isn't going to have as much success passing the ball against this defense, but I think he's going to keep them within the game, but they'll lose by just one score. Jalen Hurts is is going to come back down to earth this afternoon. I I don't think he's going to have an otherworldly performance or such a captivating performance this go around. I think it's going to be a blowout. I do. And I think the San Francisco 49ers are going to win 38-13. And there are going to be a lot of question marks after week two surrounding the Eagles. Everyone's saying, is Jalen Hurts really that good? There's going to be a lot of pressure that typically comes with the week two fodder and all of the chatter. I I do think Jalen Hurts is the quarterback, but I think week two is a week where he's going to struggle because he did so well in week one.
So now we're done with the NFL conversation. We're now going to jump to MLB. And now with less than a month until playoffs begin, two teams have already secured their playoff berth, the San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers. They have both been locked in a battle to win the National League West. Now between these two teams, who do you think is going to go straight to the division series? And who do you think will have to go through that wild card elimination game? I think it's going to be the San Francisco Giants in the end. As much as I believe both of these teams are amazing, I think they're probably the two best teams in the National League, maybe if not in all of baseball, just based on their talent alone. But I think the Giants have a very easy schedule. They've already won their series against the Atlanta Braves, who are first in the NL East. They play. They have a very easy schedule. They, they're playing the Padres a few times, but they've been ice cold since the All-Star break. There was a clip that released last night of Manny Machado and Trinando Tatis, the two superstars of that Padres team, getting at one another for an alleged call strike that almost got Tatis ejected. So I think they're starting to break down. The Giants are easily going to take advantage of that. The Dodgers also have to play Milwaukee, I believe, to end the year, which is one of the better teams in the league. I think they have the best pitching in all of baseball, but I think the Giants are just going to barely squeak by based on their schedule. I actually don't think the Giants will will squeak by. I think they will win with when the NF. Oh my goodness, when the NL West. See, we're talking about football. It confused me. NFC, NL West, but I would say I think the the San Francisco Giants are going to have a favorably wide margin to close out because. The San Francisco Giants are the darlings of baseball this year. Everyone was expecting the Giants to fall off a cliff, fall into the San Francisco Bay, so to speak, and they didn't. It showed that, no, they're a very good team. They picked up Chris Bryant for a reason because they had a belief in their roster, in their team, that they could get it done, that they could go the full way. Two weeks ago, they played the, Giant, uh, they played the Dodgers, and they did well in that series. And from an outsider's perspective, that was a very important series because that was the last time they were going to play each other. And the giants, you were able to hold on to your divisional lead. You were able to clinch the playoffs soon thereafter. And that's all you really needed. I think the Dodgers at this moment in time, just have to worry about the wild card because they're up 16 games on the St. Louis Cardinals. So no one's getting that top wild card spot. They don't have to worry about that. It's always great to try to get the divisional win. I I think every team plays for that. But if I'm the Dodgers right now, you're already in the playoffs. It's going to be very hard down the stretch with less than 15 games to go to make up a two-game deficit. Just worry about the wild card. Lock that up like you already have it locked up. Figure out whoever you're going up against. Right now, it's the Cardinals, but that could change. You, If you're the Dodgers, you have to handle business today against the Cincinnati Reds. Now, this is more of a hypothetical, but if the season did end today and each first-place team of each division made it to the playoffs, the American League would be the Tampa Bay Rays, the Chicago White Sox, and the Houston Astros. The wild cards would include the Boston Red Sox and the Toronto Blue Jays. And then the National League would be the Atlanta Braves, the Milwaukee Brewers, and interchangeable, the San Francisco Giants, Los Angeles Dodgers, 
the wild card was, would also be interchangeable, but then the St. Louis Cardinals would be in there as well. Now, do you agree with this playoff lineup or do you think there are other teams that might squeak in, make a run, have a chance at a playoff spot? And if you don't agree with that, what teams do you think might have a chance? You know what, guys? Right now, this wild card race, I wouldn't say the divisional races, but the wild card race might be the tightest and closest race I have ever seen. Particularly if I'm going back to 2012 when the, the wild card game really came into effect. I, I don't think I've ever seen it this close. I know 2013 in the AL was pretty close where you had the Rays, the Indians, and the Rangers all having to play each other in some sort of a combination. But it's very close. If I'm looking at the division, I, I don't think anyone's going to catch up to most of the teams in charge. Like, for example, the AL East, I think Tampa Bay is in the driver's seat there. They're up seven and a half on Boston. AL Central, the Chicago White Sox have that locked up. AL West, Houston Astros are good to go. I don't think anyone's going to catch them. Oakland and Seattle, they have to worry about the wild card. The National League East, that's where it gets a little tricky because you have the Atlanta Braves who have shot themselves in the foot a lot. They were the hottest team in baseball less than three weeks ago, and then now they're a middling team, and they're only up one game on the Philadelphia Phillies. I don't think they have to worry about the New York Mets. The New York Mets ha have just destructed themselves, and I'm saying that as a New York Mets fan. The Brewers, they're a tough team, but I don't think anyone's going to catch them. And then obviously you have San Francisco, L.A. So if I'm going to talk about any team that is going to make a jump and shock a lot of people, it's going to be a team from the wild card race. It's not going to be a divisional team. Maybe the only divisional team I could say are the Phillies. That might be the only team who can make a real shot at, at, at clipsing the Atlanta Braves. But everyone else, I, I would say it comes down to the wild card. It's the wild, wild west in the AL wild card. The Yankees, they're a half game back from Toronto. Oakland, they're two games back. And Seattle's four. So those are pretty much the four or five teams that are contending. And the NL, it's pretty tight as well. You have St. Louis, who has that second spot. And then Cincinnati, who's playing the Dodgers, they're two back. Philadelphia, two and a half. San Diego, two and a half. And the Mets have petered out. But I would say it comes down to the wild card. If I'm going to pick, I think either Cincinnati or Philadelphia are the two teams that could jump over the Cardinals in the NL. Yeah, I, when I was looking at this lineup, I was thinking of teams that could potentially jump, and I agree with you. I think the Reds, I think, have a great shot of jumping the Cardinals. St. Louis has to play the Brewers seven times to end the season, four games being on the road in Milwaukee. So they could potentially lose two or four, three or four, where while the Reds get to play the Nationals and Pirates, two of the worst teams in baseball, I believe both are already eliminated from the playoffs. They've been eliminated for a few weeks now. They play them 10 of their last 14 games, so – you know, they can easily catch up games there. And the NL East, NL East race, I think, is going to be – is very interesting because September 28th to 30th, the second-to-last series for both teams, the Phillies go to Atlanta and what I probably will think will decide the fate of the NL East because both the other both those teams don't really have tough schedules going into that series. And so that, that matchup, that series, is probably going to determine who's going to be making the playoffs out of those two teams. But – I think the Reds can jump in the wild card and 
that last series is really going to determine who's going to win the NL East. Now, it's crazy to think that we're already at the end of this MLB season and the playoffs are less than a month away. And now jumping to NBA, we're less than a month away from the start of that season. So news recently came out saying that NBA players won't be required to get a coronavirus vaccine before hitting the hardwood this upcoming season. Now, ESPN did report that there's not going to be a mandate in place as the league and the NBPA negotiated COVID-related protocols ahead of the new campaign. The, the report, it did note that 85% of players are already fully vaccinated, but the NBA is requiring staff and referees to get the vaccine before the season starts. Now, the question that I have is, if the staff and referees are required to get vaccinated, then why not just have the entire league require vaccinations, including the players? I think it has to do with the NBA Players Association. I mean, whether you agree or not, these athletes view their bodies like temples. They work, they spend millions of dollars on these health regiments, these programs, personal chefs, what have you, and they're constantly keeping track of what they put in their body. Now, if they see a vaccine and they're not 100% sure what's in it, they might be a bit hesitant to take it. Whether you agree or not, that's just how it is for some of these athletes. But, and I know it was an issue in the NFL that they're trying to work. So probably NBA PA, NBA PA put something in place saying, hey, you know, these athletes, they spend these dollars. These They are the product. If they don't trust what's in it, I think they probably negotiate saying, hey, you can have these placed, but you can't mandate us athletes to get vaccinated. I agree, Ryan. There, there's really no other way to put it other than the union reps in the Players Association is significantly stronger than the union reps that are there for the referees, that are there for the regular workers who work in Manhattan for NBA. It's just night and day. And it, it's partly because the players have the buy-in program where you, you pay for the players association and the union, your union dues rather to, to keep going. That, that's why it's so strong because they have the, the player association presidents that are now, I believe it's CJ McCollum. And for years, that's been the case where you have your, your player association presidents who are standing out there and really being a voice and, and they drive a hard bargain as well in the CBA, the collective bargaining agreement. That's what it comes down to. They, they have, in terms of representation, it is much stronger than what the referees have. And I get it. The referees, they're workers. They're not necessarily brands like the players are. They're workers. So there's not going to be the financial backing for the referees or the game clock operators and what have you that there will be for the players. So it makes sense. But if you're the NBA, if you can force anyone to get vaccinated, you are behooved to do that because it's a business. You lost from March 2020 to December 2020 billions of dollars where you lost out on tickets, revenue, other things as well. Probably TV contracts took a dive. Now you need to start making that money back, which they have, but I think you need to continue on that path that you were this past season. Now, strict 
protocols have been put in place for these unvaccinated players, such as having lockers far from the vaccinated teammates, having to eat, fly, ride buses in different sections. And these protocols, they're not final, they're subject to change. What are your thoughts on these protocols that are set in place? It's a business, Ryan, right? It's a business. Maybe you disagree with me, but you, the NBA, you have to make money. And maybe from a personal standpoint, I don't know if I agree with people being separated from others because of their own belief, but you know what? The NBA is a, a private business. They can do whatever the heck they want to do. And even though they can't, they may not be able to mandate that the players have to be vaccinated. They can put it in a way like the NFL is doing where, all right, you don't have to get vaccinated, but you can eat with your teammates when you want to. You have to eat at a certain time and you have to eat in certain rooms or away from everyone else. You have to work out in other rooms than the rest of your teammates. You have to travel differently. You have to sleep in, in different floors of hotels or in different hotel rooms. You don't have a roommate or you have a different roommate than you had last season. So there are different protocols and, and different segments of the rules that the NBA is bending so that there aren't any outbreaks. And luckily last year, there wasn't too many of that, but there were enough close calls and enough positive cases that the NBA, they, they said, you know what? We don't want to deal with that because the Delta variant is strong and we can't afford to, to lose more money than we did in the 2019, 2020 season. Yeah, it is a business. And, you know, luckily, as you said, there weren't too many outbreaks, but when they were, it really affected the play on the court. I remember there was a time when the Sixers had to run six players on the court against the Denver Nuggets because half their team was in COVID safety protocol. But I also think it's put in place to kind of incentivize these players to get vaccinated because, you know, you want to join the team camaraderie. You want to, you know, be together in the locker room. You want to go, you want to eat, eat together. You want to do all these stuff that you did pre COVID. Well, if you get vaccinated, you'll be able to do that to a certain extent, but if you're not, you're not going to be able to do it. You know, the NBA is trying to make sure they don't have a major outbreak because that leads to a worse product in the court. And they're also trying to kind of push players to get vaccinated without explicitly saying so. Now, in terms of different state laws, obviously we're close to New York. We know the laws that are put in place for the vaccine mandates and the, it being required. So the New York Knicks, the Brooklyn Nets, the Golden State Warriors, they are all required to get vaccinated unless a certain player or staff is approved for medical or religious exemption. And President Joe Biden, he just announced a sweeping set of vaccine mandates this past week that are set to impact as many as 100 million Americans. Now, in terms of the NBA, why do you think that that last 15% of unvaccinated players is so hesitant? And what do you think the NBA can do in terms of incentives to make these uh, players, the 15%, get the COVID vaccine? Well, I kind of already addressed the last 15% of my point when saying that, you know, these athletes are skeptical of what's in it. And in terms of incentives, I really don't know what else they could do. I mean, them restricting the team, like restricting individuals from being part of teammate camaraderie, locker room, whatever. I think that can incentivize people. I don't think, uh, you know, money boost is either ethical or I don't think the NBA PA would allow it because, 
you know, if you're giving out money, hey, here's vaccine, you're getting vaccinated, here's money. Because one, if an athlete doesn't want to do it and you're basically kind of forcing them to do it, I don't think they would agree with that. And two, what happens to the other 85% of athletes who already did get vaccinated without this, you know, monetary mandate? So I think that's kind of off the table. I think what they have in place in terms of policies might push some athletes towards getting it and the other, let, let's say 5% of them get vaccinated because of these policies. And they're like, you know what, I'll just bite the bullet because I want to be with my team and be part of a team. And then the other 10%, you kind of just have to hope something else happens. I really don't know what else you could do because I just think, you know, monetary benefits would be unfair to the other players who did get vaccinated without them. And I don't think the NBA PA would allow it. Well, at this moment in time, in where we are in the stages of the vaccine, if you're not vaccinated already, you're probably not going to be vaccinated unless you're, there's a sweeping mandate in your job, your business, your school, what have you. You're probably not going to be vaccinated. So if you're Adam Silver, if you're the NBA, I guess the one incentive you can bring other than being able to participate in daily activities outside of practice it's that you're only helping your team. And by not getting vaccinated, you're at a, comp- a competitive disadvantage. Look at the Milwaukee Bucks last year. Why did they win the NBA Finals? Not because they were the best team in the league. They weren't. The Brooklyn Nets were the best team. They won the NBA Finals because they were the healthiest team. And they even had a positive COVID case or at least two positive COVID cases in the NBA finals, yet they still won the NBA title. It all comes down to health. If you were healthy, you were giving your team an advantage because we're at a point now in society, especially in the NBA, where injuries and being sidelined does not just relate to tearing your ACL or hurting your knee. No, catching COVID also is kind of an injury in a way where you're sidelined, you're not able to play. It may take a while before you're able to come back. And if you're unvaccinated, you are only putting your team at a competitive disadvantage. The Milwaukee Bucks are case in point. They're a prime example of a team that was healthy. Now, I know... That may not have everything to do with the vaccine, but this year I think it will. If you have a team that is close to 100% vaccinated, you're only helping yourself. Well, that is all for this week's episode of X's and Opinions. Make sure to listen to all of our other WSOU sports podcasts throughout the week on any streaming platform, Spotify, Apple Music, iHeartRadio. For Michael Daly and Ryan Henry, I'm Haley Zemek. Have a great day.